Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Sass Elisha. And I'm Jeremy Heiner. So in these episodes, we usually talk about clinical stuff. This is no different. Uh, but we got a little bit of a twist in this one. We're going to bring in a journal article from a recent AANA publication just two months ago in April. And we're excited to talk about this. It has to do with crisis management, but specifically how we think about managing a crisis. And that is absolutely necessary. All of us can work on this, and that can be worked on for an entire career. Absolutely. So we know your time is important. We're going to get right to it. So get ready. Take some deep breaths. Pre-oxygenate yourself because it is go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Now, you mentioned that the article just came out, and it did, in April of 2023. The title of it is A Cognitive Template for Management of Perioperative Adverse Events. And Jeremy we know the authors. We do, we do. So Lisa Osborne-Smith, she's a program director for OHSU, Oregon Health Science University in Oregon, and her colleague, Barry Swerdlow. So we know that uh, they have written several articles together, and we're excited to talk about this one. Before we do, we want to let everyone know that we are super excited this year because we are speaking at the AANA. And one of the one of the talks is in Seattle. So this is in August in Seattle at the AANA Congress. One of the talks we will be recording a podcast and specifically focusing on crisis management. So this is very timely. It is, and you know this is one of those topics that I, it doesn't matter if you're just in practice, if you're a student, or if you've been doing anesthesia for thirty years there is always the ability to improve on this thinking process. And you know, Jeremy and I have been doing education for quite some time. And to be quite honest, we have always struggled with how to teach students a thought processes as to how to decide, you know, what to do, when to do it, when is there an adverse critical event that is occurring. So what we're gonna be talking about in the next little bit is something that is more objective and something that is organized that everybody can use and that you can practice 
prior to being in the operating room and experiencing something that doesn't happen often, although is incredibly critical. Yeah, one of the reasons that I really like this article is because it provides a template on how how I should be thinking. My they and they they term it metacognition here in the article. But how I can systematically go through and consciously think about how I manage a crisis. And the great thing is is we can practice this process. Yeah. And you mentioned the word metacognition. I'm not that smart. It's, it's a, big, a big word. It's a big word. <laughs> um, it's defined in the article as an understanding of one's own thought processes. And, you know, many times we're in the operating room and we, when we see things that are occurring, we do something called pattern mapping, meaning that with our experience, we've experienced the similar situation. And because we have seen that pattern, we make an assumption that the diagnosis or what is occurring is the same. However, at times, you know, sometimes that thinking, that line of thinking is incorrect and we don't make the wrong, the right diagnosis. And, you know, the patient treatment isn't what should be prescribed. Okay, so the article begins with, as Sass mentioned, that definition of metacognition and then they talk a little bit about system one and system two thinking. And that, that work is based on the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I think he actually won a Nobel Prize for that kind of work. And just a, a brief definition, system one is a type of thinking that essentially it operates automatically. It's very quick. You don't need any, hardly any effort to bring a group of thoughts. Uh, Sass had mentioned the pattern mapping. There's a term called mental models, which is based on our experience. We will group information, techniques, skills together into a mental model, and then we'll store our brains will store that for easy retrieval so we don't have to think about the individual components. So with little or no effort, really very little voluntary control, our system one thinking will bring, based on our experience, information forward. Now, system two is a little bit different. This is the slower process. This allocates attention to more effort and more mental thinking. This is using your pre prefrontal cortex and thinking through a particular problem. So it's, it's quite a bit slower than system one thinking. Yeah. Now, do you think Daniel Kahneman ever provided an anesthetic? <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that I think he did. <laughs> so that's a lot of stuff to go over. Now, realize that process is very complicated. It's certainly something that can be learned and practiced. But we know human beings don't think well under enormous amounts of stress. Our bodies, our brains kind of think run, get away from the danger, and therefore thinking in those terms in a critical critical way is extremely difficult. Yeah, and they talk about that, they talk about that particular concept in the article, how our, our thoughts can be distorted by all the stress and, and the stress and the pressure that we experience in the operating room. Yeah. Now, let's talk about checklists because you and I are big into checklists and always have been and still, you know, recommend them and think very highly of them. In the article and then what we've been talking about for years is a checklist is is only as good as the diagnosis is correct. So, for instance, yep. if you have bronchospasm and desaturation, 
Is that from, you know, stimulation from the endotracheal tube? Or is that from someone who is developing anaphylaxis? You know, very different diagnoses. Therefore, a checklist isn't going to be able to do that abstract thinking, that slow thinking for you to come to that correct diagnosis. Yeah, there's a reason why they call them cognitive aids. They're just tools. And you, yourself, the individual, the practitioner, has to do all the legwork. They have to do all the thinking in order to effectively use a checklist tool. Yeah, let me read this statement from the article. No universal framework for the diagnostic and therapeutic approach to these problems is presented. There is no standard method provided that can be utilized in real time to allow for the generic and abstract reasoning portions of the dynamic response to critical events. So we have to think. We have to think and we can practice prior to something like this happening. Now in the paper here, they, the authors, they talk about a six-step cognitive template that they use for, that, that can be used for perioperative adverse events. So if there's a crisis, we can use these six steps. And, and as we mentioned earlier, this is great because now we have an organized process, a template. And the first step is simply verifying that the information is correct. So look at the monitor. Is it real or is it artifact? Is it trending? Is, look at take. We've all done this in the OR. We get uh, a blood pressure, and we don't think it looks particularly good. So what do we do? We retake it. Are the values trending? Or should we believe what we're seeing on the screen? All right. Step number two is a generic response, and what it says is, what are the steps that will likely initiate appropriate therapy for ad an adverse event? regardless of the etiology. So this is a, you know, a really great example is the saturation is going down. What is the cause? Endobronchial intubation, bronchospasm, atelectasis, VQ mismatch, blah, blah, blah. We could keep going, right? Yeah. Lots yeah. of stuff. However, what they're saying here is, can't we give 100% oxygen, hand ventilate, listen to the lungs, and then come to a diagnosis? Yeah, and there's a very technical term for this. It's actually called recognition primed decision making. So how many times have you seen desaturation and what do you do? You do the steps you just outlined. Step three in this cognitive template is identification of a precipitating incident. So essentially this is cause and effect. What immediately, if anything, preceded the adverse event that is now causing the problem, the crisis? So did I do something? Did I give a medication? Did the surgeon do something? Did they nick an artery and now the patient's bleeding? What is, what if anything, what occurred prior to the event that's happening? Yeah, so a really quick example. You give a neuromuscular blocker, let's say you give rock, and two minutes later, all of a sudden, you have little to no blood pressure, patients having a bronchospasm, and they have redness all over their chest and face. Ooh, that would not be a very pleasant situation to be in. And we're thinking what? Boom. Anaphylaxis. anaphylaxis. Exactly. So what, you know, why would a patient all of a sudden develop anaphylaxis? Well, to a, med a good possible reason, to a medication that I gave two minutes ago. Exactly. Now, the, and they also mentioned this in the article, there isn't always a precipitating incident. There's not always this cause and effect. So 
great. If, if we're able to fix the problem because we've immediately identified something, that's fantastic. But we may need to have a more involved process in terms of critical thought and more abstract reasoning if there was not a precipitating event. So sometimes there simply isn't these pre-events and we need to be careful of our own biases. If something has happened over and over again and, and, and now we have this redness or whatever, and maybe this happened to me five or 10 years ago and I managed it in a certain way, well, yeah, it certainly can prime my thought process, but it might not be the same thing. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 855- 304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. All right, let's go to number four, which is the formulation of a broad differential diagnosis. What it says is, what is the broad differential diagnosis of an adverse event based on anatomy and physiology? And they, in order to portray this, they give the example of, all of a sudden your peak pressures are increased. So now you have a broad problem. My peak pressures are increased and now you're gonna try to decide what is the problem. Could it be the pneumoperitoneum? Could it be the uh, pressure from uh, the uh, head down position, them being in Trendelenburg? Could it be they're having a bronchospasm? Could it be endobronchial intubation? So again, you're creating a, uh, you're looking at a problem and creating a general uh, diagnosis or broad differential diagnosis. Yeah, and this is where we can relate back to the system one and system two thinking. Essentially, steps one, two, and three in this cognitive process are are the is that immediately retrievable information, that system one thought that comes from the formulation of our mental models and the pattern recognition. But now in step four and beyond up to step six, this is going to require that slow, deliberate thought and the formulation of these potential problems. Yeah. And in this step, in in my uh, opinion, sometimes all of a sudden, you know, in the example that I gave or that they give in the article, you have, an in, you have increased peak pressures and people jump to a diagnosis of, okay, those peak pressures must be increased because the patient's obese and in a head down position. And most times you're probably right, but sometimes you may not be right. So what's important is to look at all of the information prior to making that diagnosis. All right, now in step five, this is termed formation of a narrowed differential diagnosis. And what they say in the article is, what is the narrowed differential diagnosis of the clinical condition? So essentially, what is the working diagnosis or diagnoses, multiple, that that we're working with, the, the problem that we think is happening? And this would be based on the overlap of differential diagnosis of what exactly is happening. Is there anything else? This is what we need to consider in step number five. We're gonna try to zero in on what we think is happening, but also keep ourselves open 
in case something else is occurring. So in the article, they talk about Occam's razor, and this is a philosophical problem-solving principle that basically says the simplest explanation is preferable over one that is more complex. And, and that makes sense. Usually, you know, if, if there's a quack, I'm going to think it's a duck. But sometimes maybe something else can make that quack. And I need to be aware. I need to look at all pieces of information. So earlier we talked about peak airway pressures. And we're going to look at that. And most of the time, head down, obese person, pneumoperitoneum, yeah, that's going to increase peak airway pressures. And probably that's going to be what's happening. But I also have to look at all the other pieces of information. Am I listening to the lungs and is there wheezing? Because maybe there's a bronchospasm going along with this. They uh, make a statement in the article, and I'm going to quote it. It says, in fact, several etiologies can occur simultaneously that result in multiple adverse events in medicine, albeit relatively rarely. I love that. So essentially, don't get sucked into thinking there's only one cause. We have to keep ourselves open and look at the entire picture. Look at all the vital signs and bring that in for to either support our working diagnoses or and or bring in other potential causes that may be happening concurrently. And this right here is why the system two thinking is so important. So we need both types of, of thinking here. And the last step, number six, selection of a targeted response or responses. And this is designing an appropriate response or responses such as diagnostic and or therapeutic to the working diagnosis or diagnoses. So this is, you've taken in all of the information, you've critically thought about it, you look at the signs and symptoms associated with what's going on, you have what you believe is a definitive diagnosis, and you treat that diagnosis. You treat that problem or adverse event. And here is a perfect place to then, once you've made that diagnosis, here is the perfect place to use a checklist because this will not only help you to make a diagnosis, and you know, Jeremy and I were talking, uh, a checklist and making a decision could also be used in steps four and steps five to help you, but in step six to truly define all the things you need to do and help you to not forget stuff, um, a checklist certainly would be valuable here. Perfect. All right. So now when they finished the article with a case scenario and we thought, well, let's go through this case scenario using the six step cognitive process for crisis management. So the case is a hysterectomy and it's on a 61 year old female. The history, this, this patient's history is moderate obesity, a BMI of 34. She has hypertension and COPD. Her medications are albuterol, teotropium and hydrochlorothiazide. Now, one hour into the case, she experiences a desaturation from 95% down to 82%. And this occurs over five minutes and the, she's at running at an FiO2 of 50%. Her inspiratory pressures increased from 22 centimeters of water up to 30 centimeters of water. Her heart rate does a slight increase from 70 beats to 85 beats and her mean arterial pressure decreases from 100 down to 80. All right, so Sass, let's apply the six-step cognitive process to this desaturation event that's happening. 
So we should probably start at step one. Let's do it. Let's start at step one. <laughs> it's usually the safest place to start. All right. So if you remember, step one was verification to see if there's artifact, to see if what we are seeing is act is actually happening and is absolutely true. So what in this their description, the low SpO2 is likely a true physiologic condition. You look at the pulse oximeter, the finger probe is on correctly. The pleth looks good. And remember, as Jeremy described in the case study, the SAT decreased over a five minute period. So you saw a trend happening, which again would support the fact that the SpO2 uh, is truly low. And then finally, what else did we see in the description? The peak inspiratory pressures also increased. All right, great. So now moving on to step two, our generic response to this desaturation or, or hypoxemic event. Well, let's increase the FiO2. So administration of 100% oxygen. And in the case, they say that this doesn't make any difference in the, uh, in the saturation, that it continues low. And next step, let's take the patient off the vent and hand ventilate. And when they do this, um, and the reason for doing this is essentially to uh, assess compliance of the bag and how easy is it to ventilate the lungs. Next, we auscultate the breath sounds. So this may reveal uh, altered breath sounds, absence of breath sounds, wheezing, whatever it is. And anybody who's been in anesthesia knows that once the drapes are on, this is not easy, <laughs> sticking a stethoscope under and actually hearing good breath sounds. Now, is it possible? Sure but it's not the easiest thing to do. And certainly we should be communicating with the surgeon and potentially calling for help. Further down the line, in terms of a general response, we may consider getting a, an arterial blood gas to evaluate what, what those values are. All right, and next going to number three, step three, which is the identification of a precipitating incident. And this is an easy one in this particular case, because there was nothing that was absolutely identifiable. And we didn't make any changes, right? This just started to happen, and we're just kind of observers to watching the SAT go down. Now we arrive at number four, which is essentially formulating a broad differential diagnosis. And Sass and I, when we teach this to our students, we like the terminology of front shelf diagnosis and back shelf diagnosis. So what's the low hanging fruit? And this is essentially step number four, the formation of a broad differential diagnosis. What do we think? What is the most easiest thing that we can think of that's that's happening? And, and it, it makes sense. What happened? The saturation went down. So the patient is likely hypoxemic. What are some reasons? Well, maybe there's not enough oxygen in the alveoli. Maybe there's a ventilation perfusion mismatch, such as dead space or shunting. There could be a, a diffusion abnormality. Maybe we're not ventilating adequately. There's hypoventilation. So these are some of the broad, easy, low-hanging front shelf diagnosis diagnoses that we can consider here in, in at this particular step. Yeah, and front shelf is what is probably most likely, right? Which is the things we go to first. Yeah. As compared to, we're going to get into back shelf which are things that don't happen as often, but still could cause the problem. Yeah, and using our generic response earlier, that was step number three, uh, by increasing the FiO2, by hand ventilating, doing listening to breath sounds, that's gonna help us zero in 
on a true diagnosis by performing these interventions. All right, so in step five, we're gonna zero in on a, a specific diagnosis. So we have increased peak pressures, we have desaturation. In addition, when we listen to the chest, we got more information. Not only did the patient sound like they were wheezing on the left side, but breath sounds sounded different. They actually sounded decreased. We looked at the tube depth where we initially placed it and had good, equal, clear, and bilateral breath sounds prior to starting the surgical procedure, and something has changed. Yeah, so if the, student, if the tube is still in the right place, there's something changed, then we can start to zero in on a diagnosis here. Yeah, so less breath sounds on the left-hand side as compared to the right, and some wheezing. What do you think a diagnosis could be? What's the final thought? It makes sense that a pneumothorax potentially is occurring. So how can we zero in on that diagnosis? What else can we do? We can do a chest x-ray. We can bring out the ultrasound probe and do a point-of-care ultrasound to see if there's a potential pneumothorax. One of the things that is also important in step five is keeping an open mind. So yes, we have likely, we, we likely have the problem. It's a pneumothorax. But is it possible that there's also a bronchospasm occurring along with the pneumothorax. So I think that's part of the genius here in this cognitive te template. And certainly the, the helpfulness of this organized thought process in that we can zero in on something, but also consider other potential causes that could be concurrently happening. Okay, and then number six, now that we have a working diagnosis that we've zeroed in on, pneumothorax, we gotta treat it. So we're gonna need a chest tube, we may keep the patient on the ventilator just depending on how they're doing and certainly communicating this with all with the entire surgical team. And then finally, they'll need to be admitted to the hospital. All right. Well, that kind of sums it up. So we just want to thank Lisa and Barry for all of their hard work and coming up with this article that we can use not only to teach students and you know improve the future of education in nurse anesthesia, but also help practitioners who may have lots of experience or less experience to come have a, a systematic way to think about problems and to come to a particular diagnosis and a correct treatment plan. Yeah, this article is just really great. And, you know, thank you, Barry and Lisa. I know that they are both passionate about education and just such great people. Uh, Barry is going to be at the AANA Annual Congress this year in Seattle, and he's uh, an expert at TEE. I know he's doing a pre-conference workshop uh, using and educating folks on the use of the TEE. So uh, check that out. Look it up and uh, attend his course. I'm sure you will not be disappointed. Okay, as always, thank you so much for hanging out with us during this episode. If you like what you've heard and you would like to help us grow, please consider leaving us a review or sharing your, your opinions and thoughts with your anesthesia colleagues. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. And word of mouth is the primary way this podcast grows. So if you've got a friend who you think might enjoy this, please consider sharing it with them. And okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. And as usual... Keep ventilating and we'll catch you on the next episode. Be
Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.